Welcome to <laughs> Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello, Mary Goulet. Hello, Steve Olsher. Richie Ote, what's up, my brother? Uh, we need you a mic. Get that man a mic. He needs to be up and loud. How about that? Oh, you know what? You're not even plugged in. That is so funny. <laughs> you you have a microphone in front of you, and this is the this is the beauty of technology, right cord? here. Hold on, here, check this out, right here. All right, this is the beauty of of live. See, if this wasn't live, then we could do anything we wanted right in this moment. But since it's live, you guys get to catch this. Right here, right now, and here we and go. Hold this on. This is how we're the gonna, pros do it. This is how the pros do, or is it that one or this one? All right, so we're gonna plug Mike uh, the mic in for Richie. This one? No, uh, I don't think so. Try the other one. We're getting there. All right, so here on Beyond Eight Figures, we do sit down. <laughs> Believe it or not, we do actually sit down with entrepreneurs. <laughs> there we go. Try that one, Richie. How about now? This is how hey. we do. Hey, we got it. <laughs> so we do sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for. More than $10 million uh, or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually. And we grill them until they share their tools and strategies and shortcuts for success. I was thinking um, we should actually make an exception, too. I, I've got a, new, I got a new thing that I'm thinking here for Beyond 8 Figures. Let me run this by you. So you guys don't even know. Let me, let me, let me run this by you. So what, what do you think if we expanded the criteria to also bring on people who have earned more than 10 million over a period of, like I'm trying to figure like so for instance like the guy we're going to ho- hopefully have on here and if not then we'll shoot the sh- stuff here about uh you know all I think the past you have the guests ready, and whatnot. You could say that. I got the ready. Okay, shoot yeah. the shit here about um about past guests and whatnot. But the the guy that hopefully we'll have on here soon, David Schottenstein, uh and there he is right now. He uh, he actually works with folks like Jamie Foxx and other celebrities and so on. And so what I was thinking is, man, that would be like that would be awesome if we could get the hookup from from David and and be like, hey, let's have Jamie Foxx on, right? Because I don't know that Jamie himself has a business as an example that uh, either grosses more than ten million oh, annually or saying. you know has exited from a business that that uh, for more than ten million. But he'd be a great guest to guess to have on because he's definitely earned a lot more than ten million, right? Yeah. So I get I don't what, know. You're what, do you, what, do, yeah. what do you guys think? Well, I think there's definitely a case for that um i think the part that would be interesting is it is playing more the influencer part because nobody's but it could be anybody it could be like um ceo it could be a ceo it could be um well right because like well ceos typically like let's say they're a retired ceo as an example and they didn't exit and they have you know they they ran really impressive businesses as an example they're not currently running one, and they didn't exit from one themselves. So it sounds like this. you Beyond eight figures. Yes. You've either built, scaled. Or, or earned. Or earned. More than 10 million bucks. Yeah. Okay, I like and that. And if you've, and, and then we always check in if they've exited, right? Like, because yeah. the influencer is not going to exit, but that just means they died. <laughs> right, <laughs> their, well, their influence reign ended. Well, but <laughs> unless unless it's like, oh no, you're the company that bought Prince's estate. Right, right. Because some of these estates live on, so that's kind of weird. But yeah, yeah. I think that as long as they have the same criteria that they earned it in a year, you yeah. can't be like over your lifetime. All right, we'll see what we can do on that. Uh, so Wade, where I, I see we've got my man David. Can you hear us? Okay. I hear you great. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you great. Just can't see you okay. If you can get that video working, that's awesome. If not, no worries, man. We'll uh, we'll do it without. No worries on that. There he at is. All. Hey, what's all up, right. my brother? And we got you there, man. Good and uh, really great having you here on Beyond Eight Figures. So we were, I don't know if you just caught that conversation now, but we're talking about the criteria here for the show, and uh, and I was just thinking maybe you know because you work with people like Jamie Fox and some of these other folks who have become very accomplished in their own right, but may not have started or are currently running a business that grosses more than 10 million or have exited from a business for more than 10 million. So I was thinking, you know, but still like a guy like Jamie Foxx would be like a perfect example of someone who certainly earned a lot more than 10 million and, uh, and would be a, you know, a great guest for the show. So anyway, that's what we were kicking around. You got any opinions on that? We'll kick it over to you, man. Well, luckily for us, uh, the business that he's a partner in definitely does over ten million. So sweet, uh, yeah, we can we can definitely talk more about that and uh, 
tell you about the journey we're going on. Yeah, that would be great, man. And um, and so after every show, we kind of look at each other and go, uh, "What have you done with your life?" You know, that's uh, exactly. that's kind of car- that's kind of Mary's catchphrase there. You are an impressive dude, man. So wait, so going way back, I mean, was the first true entrepreneurial endeavor the Astro and Black thing, or was that like your first foray, or were you like one of those always sort of an entrepreneur kind of guys? Always an entrepreneur. I yeah. uh, when I was uh, ten, I was selling Cuban cigars for a couple of years. Nice. All my dad, all my dad's business friends. I had a little network, and uh, my dad found out eventually. I was like, uh, I was fifteen, and I was sent away to all these schools because I kept on getting kicked out. And <laughs> I was in a Jewish boarding school in Venice, Italy, and my dad was in a meeting, and his friend says to him. He says, where's your uh, your son, David? I haven't heard from him in a little while, and I'm out of Monte Cristo's. And my dad's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David's my, David's my guy. You're on Monte Cristo's. So, did you have, like, the trench coat, or were you, like, one of those? Don't like, not, like, exactly, want? No. not exactly the trench coat. It was a little bit more organized than that, but uh, eventually, let's just say that was the end of that business. My dad called me up, and he's like, no more, no more. You're done. Here's he's the like, I admire I admire your entrepreneurial spirit, but but no more. No more. So, so here, here's the question: Did he was he mad that you were selling Cuban cigars at a young age, or was he mad he wasn't getting a cut? <laughs> you know, uh, it's that's a good question. He actually wasn't <laughs> mad at all. He was happy that I he was happy to see I was motivated and that I'm an entrepreneur. But he uh, he didn't want me getting into trouble, and he wanted me to focus on school and not get kicked out yet again. So. Uh, <laughs> But it kind of begs, was, the, but it kind of begs the question, right? And the point is well taken, especially as we sit here today with the way that the let's just be honest here, the way that the educational system is so flawed, you know, especially here in the states. Perhaps it's a little more uh, advanced, for lack of a better term, in, in some other countries. But certainly here in the states, you know, you go in, you learn a trade to to get a job that hopefully you have for fifty years, and then you die. Well, that doesn't, I mean, like that's uh, that doesn't exist anymore, right? So. So it is really interesting that even because you're fairly young. I mean, are you in your late 30s or? 35. Yeah, you're mid 30s. Yeah, man. All right, fine. We won't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 35 with all you've done, dude, is super impressive. But the point, well, you know, is well taken in terms of, you know, do you have, so you're not married, you don't have kids. Oh, you know, you are married and you do have kids. That's right. I am married, married with four kids. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah. And how old are your kids right now? I've got, so I got married at 19. I had my first kid at 20. Uh, I've got a 15-year-old son, and then I have three daughters. Um, okay. My daughters are uh, 11, 8, and 4. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. So, in, ter- what- in terms of getting a lot done in a short period of time, it's I probably would attribute it to that. Yeah, right. Um, so, wow. so to that end, you know, just kind of closing the loop on that. The so the conversation was, you know, hey, you know, you we want you to get into a good school. We don't want you to get kicked out of school. But here you are making good money. And obviously this is carried over to your being an entrepreneur and you're doing all of these entrepreneurial type things. None of which my hunch is that the education contributed anything towards. So it's just funny how like kind of polar opposite in terms of your agenda versus your dad's as a father. Now I have a 15 year old and a 12 year old. I'm in that spot of, Hmm. You know, I've often said that college is pretty much the single worst investment that a parent can make What's your What's your take on it? Do you put the kids in school? Do you just uh, do, you, do you let them go out and do the entrepreneurial thing? What What's your take on that? So, first of all, I would definitely encourage entrepreneurship at a very young age. There's no question. The earlier they learn to uh, they they taste that success and they have the success and they learn to deal with the failure, the better because they'll become acclimated to it. It'll help them later in life. Um, in terms of college, uh, my view on it is. If my son wants to become a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, or any of those, anything professional, 100% go to college. If yeah. you're going to go to college because you want to, you know, be a, ma- a liberal arts major, and uh, and then you want to party and whatever, I rather put my son into business at a young age, you know, at 18, 19 years old, and get him cracking. Let him learn real estate. Let him learn, you know, whether it's the financial markets. I don't think college does a whole lot to uh, to support that. Yeah. So that's my Yeah. No, I was just going to say the same thing. I just forgot we did, we didn't say the clarification. We know the clarification, but Mm -hmm. we didn't ask for the audience what the. Yeah. So please. So on Beyond Eight Figures, we talk to people who are either have exited for $10 million a year or currently run 
a business that's doing $10 million a year or more. And it sounds like you might have done both or is it currently or what, how do you qualify? So I sold a business that was doing uh, well in excess of $10 million a year uh, back in 2011. And the business that I'm currently running is also doing well in excess of $10 million a year. So I guess both. Um, sold one and running one. Yeah. And so let's let's go back then to and what you're doing now. We'll get into uh, all of that fun stuff. Yeah. Well, but let, let's take a, a couple of steps back. So was the first and you said, you know, you learned from your failures and whatnot. My hunch is then you've probably had a couple of flame outs uh, uh, along the way. The business that you sold was that your first entrepreneurial endeavor or were there a couple of flame outs before that? Nope, that was the first one. That was so, the first one. So let's talk that about one. that because that was Aster and Black, no? Yeah. So I was lucky with that in that I found something I love doing um, and I was able to make a nice profit doing it. Um, I started Aster and Black in 2004 and I built it up over a seven-year period with multiple salespeople uh, in different states, different countries, and I sold that to a private equity group. I sold a, a large majority stake to a private equity group in 2011. Um, the, the, the guys that bought the business, uh, did not see eye to eye with me in terms of running the business. And, um, they chose to run it a different way. And we agreed that, uh, they brought in a, a new CEO. I, I was essentially shown the door and, uh, within a couple of years, they took the, they took that business into bankruptcy. Mm. Um, so when I sold it, it was a, it was a great company, a successful company, um, I will say, while I didn't have any flameouts prior to Aster and Black, during Aster and Black, during the buildup of that company, um, there were numerous problems and obstacles and numerous points at which I wanted to shut it down. Mm -hmm. So I will tell you, from a manufacturing perspective, uh, we had a period of like six months where every single suit that came in for customers was made to fit like a five-year-old. I mean, it was like... Uh, we, for a while, for that during that six months, we nicknamed it Disaster in Black. It was a <laughs> literally, literally a nightmare. And uh, I mean, I had first round top five NFL draft picks the week before the draft waiting for their suit, you know, to wear on draft day in the green room. And the suit comes in, and they can't get their arm in it. Yeah. And, oh my gosh. and here I am, and my salesperson is sitting there, and you got this guy, he's 350 pounds trying to stick his arm into a little jacket and he's got probably the biggest day of his life coming up on national television. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you know, what can I do? You know, nothing. So mm-hmm. that was, that was, uh, we went through some very trying periods. Um, being married with a wife, a very supporting, a very supportive wife was definitely helpful throughout that period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we got over that hump. We got over many more humps and we were able to, uh, you know, get it to the point where someone wanted to come in and pay us a bunch of money for it. Yeah. I've got a million questions just working backwards, if you don't mind, first. So Aster is a a very famous name, right? So there's a street in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, did 44 years. I did my time there uh, before moving to San Diego. So Aster, very uh, famous name. I mean, it just, uh, when you think of the name Aster, certainly in terms of Chicago, and I'm sure in other places, you just think of money. Is there, just talk about, and, and, First and foremost, let's just get out of the way here. What, what did Aster and Black do? So you were custom clothier? You were custom clothier. Yes. yes. We yes. made custom suits for everyone, NFL athletes, business people, you name it. And the idea was let's bring suits over, let's bring manufacturing over from, we'll use manufacturing in Hong Kong primarily and get better pricing. And we'll offer custom suits at a price point that nobody else can touch. And at the time, now everyone sells custom clothes. Back then, no one did it. Mm-hmm. We were like the ones going to Asia to do it, basically. So, but did we, you have a love? We, did you have a love for clothes? I mean, like, where where did love, this idea love. come? from? Are you a suit guy typically? I mean, because now you're kind of for those who aren't watching us live here, and remember, you can join us every Thursday as we broadcast live from twelve until one Pacific on Beyond Eight Figures, one until two Pacific for Reinvention Radio. Uh, if you're not watching live right now, like David's just kind of chill. He's got you know kind of a V-neck ish. I don't know. Some of I don't even know. There's probably a term for that shirt, but it's not a suit. It's a Mizzen and Main Henley. There you uh, go. Mizzen and Main, one of my one of my companies I've invested in, and this is the incredibly comfortable 
and well-priced Henley that they sell on their website. There you go. See, nice plug. So, <laughs> yeah. okay, so you've always so you've always been kind of a clothes kind of person, fashion forward, always. that sort of thing. So this was just a natural way for you to step in. So for you, it wasn't just because a lot of people just simply look at things from the standpoint of a commodity-oriented business where there's an opportunity. They can buy widget A for X number of dollars and sell widget A for Y number of dollars and make some money. For you, you actually had a love for it. You actually had a passion for it. Had you gone? I mean, but had you gone to fashion school or design school, or did you have partners who were designing suits? No, I had. Um, I went to school in Venice, Italy. So I first got turned on to fashion. I think living in Italy for a couple of years, and I have a cousin uh, named Jay who is a prolific dresser. I mean, um, every time I, every time you see him, he's got a different kick-ass sport coat on or beautiful you know and he's you know he's wearing brioni and keton and all these great brands and so growing up with him with my cousin i i i got i developed a real love for uh, for fashion and for particularly for putting on a beautiful sport coat or a beautiful suit mm-hmm. um it's funny after i sold the business and i ended up investing in mizzen and maine their whole thing is comfort so suddenly once i started wearing these super comfortable dress shirts and whatever i've gone almost completely casual yeah. So, and again, just as a follow-up to that, then Richie and Mary, I know you guys got a million questions. But I'm just curious, like, take us back to the embryonic stages, right? Because there's a lot of people out there who have these ideas. And so yeah. kind of following the, the following the start scale exit yeah. Uh, yeah. format here of the show. So in that start, like, how did you actually start? Did you yeah, raise so money? Did you, I mean, like, what, how, how'd you do it? It's an interesting story. So I was, I had the idea when I was 16 in Italy, um, a kid, a kid walked into school wearing this beautiful tailored shirt. And um, at the time, living in Italy, going to Italian stores and buying nice shirts, he'd spend 150, 200 bucks on a shirt, right? That was considered like expensive. And that's what, you know, for kids who were fortunate enough to, to grab daddy's credit card, that's what you do, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, um, this kid walks in and he's got this beautiful shirt. And I say, how much you pay for that shirt? He says, 50 bucks. I said, how'd you get a custom shirt for 50 bucks? He says, well, there's a guy from Hong Kong that comes to Montreal every year where I'm from, and he sets up at a hotel. And we go, my mom takes us there, we get fitted, and we buy shirts, and then they come shipped in this like brown paper bag, basically. So I'm thinking to myself, why don't I open up a shirt store? I'll go to Hong Kong, I'll find the tailors, I'll create the process, learn the measuring process, and then I'll offer that same service with a higher level of service where I can actually deliver the shirts to people, you know, and make sure they're fit properly, give them customer service because it didn't exist at the time. Mm-hmm. So that was my idea when I was 16. Fast forward, I get married at 19 and I still have this idea. I still want to do this. My dad is telling me, go into real estate, go into real estate. You know, our, our family is a, uh, he's in real estate and shopping malls and whatnot. And I said, uh, nope, I, I, I have no interest. I, I absolutely have no interest. I, I want to do this. So he told me terrible idea at the time. And, um, said it's retail is a tough bit i said it's not retail um, it's all gonna be made to order i have no inventory etc so i ended up um i come from a family that's blessed with uh, means right so i had the ability to go work in the family business so to speak and i had the ability to really fall back on family money mm-hmm. i really decided mm-hmm. i wanted to do it on my own and i didn't want to take any money from my family i wanted to just do my thing so using money from my wedding from wedding gifts and whatnot and i you know i made out pretty nicely there. Uh, I went to Hong Kong. I remember I, I bought my ticket for $429 on Cafe Pacific. I got the last seat on the plane in the, in the row that doesn't recline mm. for the nonstop 17 hour flight. And, um, you know, they say you could fly, you flying economy class. I was like, I'm flying low class. This is like, <laughs> this is like, this is like brutal. This is the seat in the back that doesn't recline like that, mm. that bad. And, I remember flying there. I did a little bit of research at the time on some of the big names and ta- you know tailors in Hong Kong. I went to, I called them up. I said, "Hey, I, I'm David Schottenstein. I want to come over and talk about manufacturing for our business that I'm starting, whatever." And um, I met with a few people. I found a found a manufacturer, and then I literally left Hong Kong with a suitcase of sam- cloth sample books, a tape measure. I had a quick one-day tutorial or two-day tutorial on how to measure. And I came back and I started Astor and Black. That was my thing. I was ready to go. I already had fancy bags made and 
had the whole garment bags made and hangers and the whole thing. And um, I started with kind of friends and family calling people up. Hey, I've got this new business. It's Aster and Black. And I chose a name that sounded really prestigious and mm-hmm. been around for a hundred years. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this sounds very waspy too. And I'm like this young Jewish kid going out and selling, uh, selling suits mm-hmm. out of a suitcase. Mm-hmm. And, um, people loved it. People were like, Oh, Aster and Black. I think I've heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> Savile yeah. Row, it's a Savile Row company, right? Oh yeah, sure, sure. So then uh, we started, we started that business. I started that business and then um, got off to a quick start. I made money right away. Mm-hmm. I didn't raise a dollar. I made money right away. Uh, I was running a running a, a tight ship, very lean, very profitable uh, early on, just because the margins were decent. And I was being really careful. I was doing everything myself eventually got to a point where I had to hire an assistant. And then it got to a point where I had to start hiring additional salespeople because I couldn't humanly handle, it wasn't humanly possible to handle the volume of people that wanted to get measured and buy prop, you know, buy product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it kind of grew from there. It was organic. Yeah. Please. Well, let's go back to the story at the draft when the guys could not put their arm through the sleeve of the suit and the clock is ticking and you're sweating. One, how did that happen? And two, how did you recover from that with those people? So the way it happened, the way it happened was the factory that we had switched to couldn't figure out, like they they didn't understand our measurements properly. We were operating so fast and furious that it wasn't like we had this whole thought out process when we switched from factory A to factory B. We just made the switch because we thought it was the smart thing to do in terms of quality and in terms of price point. But they weren't ready for it and we weren't ready for it. And it just messed a lot of stuff up. And so, so they weren't translating the measurements properly is really how it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that happened with this guy, what I did was I said, look, it's on me. Um, I'll take you to the nicest store here in midtown Manhattan and I'll charge a new suit for you on my credit card, whatever it costs. I think, I think I spent 2,600 bucks getting him a suit that fit beautifully. I took care of him. I made sure he looked like a million bucks for the draft. He really appreciated how I stepped up in a tough time. And we are our friends till now. And that guy actually ended up uh, referring like 100 NFL clients to us. What I, what, what I have found is it's always easy to shine when things are going well. But when a curveball is thrown at you and you're in a tough spot and you can step up and do the right thing and show that you're accountable and make sure do right by your customer or by your client – that's when you really get the opportunity to earn that person's loyalty. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, and it's funny too, because I'm sure like for these guys, you know, you send it out to Asia and you know, with all due respect to my Asian friends out there, you're not the They're biggest not people, people in the whole people. wide world. So, so, so it looked so, normal you know, to them. Well, no. So these guys <laughs> in Asia get these measurements and they're like 22 inch arms and 40 inch thighs are like, Oh no, that's gotta be a mistake. That's <laughs> so, cut it in half. There's, there's yep. no way that so, could be right. <laughs> so, so it's funny you're saying that because they were having to wrap their heads around this idea that this guy's bicep is larger in circumference than their waist, right? <laughs> They're literally trying to wrap their heads around that concept. It was like, that was that was part of the problem, yeah. <laughs> Richie, what were you going to say, man? Well, I was going to, so I'm going to go back a little here. And so you started out with hustling it yourself out of your yep. suitcase. Yep. And I heard in there that an executive assistant was your first hire. We, we've heard yeah. that a lot. I think the last we have, yeah. like four episodes in a row, executive assistant is the first hire. And then salespeople tends to be pretty high on the list, too. For sure. um, I should say, in fairness, by the way, just to my wife of 16 years, um, before I hired the executive assistant, because I was trying to operate so leanly, I asked my wife if she would pitch in. Mm-hmm. And my wife literally did everything for me in terms of order entry, follow up with Asia, she even took my fabric books, which were in these crappy little plastic covers, and went out and had little binders made and then sat there cutting the fabric with scissors and using a hole puncher mm-hmm. to slide the fabrics into this nicer setup. So before I actually splurged on the assistant, my wife had my back. You don't realize how much that just inspired me. I've been talking with Trish about but this Trish, for a while. <laughs> Trish, <laughs> beware. Uh, Trish, you are slacking. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the, the way that it'll be the best entry to the conversation is you get to control my calendar. 
right? Ooh. Because when I'm talking to her, she always wants to know the time, and everyone's like, "You control my calendar too." Okay, That's so one I'm, way of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the where I'm going next is so what? Where do you see in hindsight now? You could have prevented the curveball. We don't know for sure, but was that would that have been an operations manager? With that, where, the where biggest, do you see? The biggest thing I've learned in my now 16 years of being in the business world is the value of being patient. Whether it's being a patient investor, whether it's being a patient businessman, anytime I've done things without some level of patience, I'm not saying sit on your butt and drag things out, but some level of patience, I've gotten burned. Mm -hmm. And switching manufacturers without the proper amount of patience and doing it the right way and the right amount of back end to support that, you get burned. Um, you put money into an investment and you want to make a quick buck and you're hoping, you know, you, you don't have the patience required to see it out. You're going to get burned. You know, that's just the way it goes. So, um, pay that, that is how I could have avoided it. I could have been more patient. I could have said, Hey, before we switch everything over, let's start with a small amount of orders and go real slow. And, but you know, you're 24 years, I was 24, 23 at the time, right? At this point, you know, we're four years into the business. I'm 23 years old. What do I know about patience, right? I mean, the only time my patience, the only time I did something without patience and it paid off was my wife. Yeah. I like her. <laughs> I have one other question for now. And then I'm sure I'll have more. So we alluded to Jamie Foxx and what you're currently doing. Not going to go into that yet, but your NFL draft. And so maybe the answer to my question is, what you first stated in the beginning, you came from a family of means, but how did you get access to these people? Were you just making phone calls and going right up to them and Hey, and you just had an so, inner confidence or did you, were they, did you know them through family or something? First round of customers were, were family, friends, people in the business world. My dad, you know, is in real estate. So he knows all these different real estate brokers. So I call on them. So. And the cigar guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by, the, by the way, all the cigar guys, were my first customers. Yeah. Uh, there's a friend of mine named Steve uh, in Columbus. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. He's a lot older than me. I sold him cigars as a kid, and he was one of my first two customers, and he bought all the way through. So, yeah, that's true. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, by the way. I benefited tremendously from having a big network of people because of my family. Mm -hmm. So let's not – let's call it what it is, right? I, got, I was lucky in that department. Yeah. Um, eventually, by being persistent with people, I was able to get referrals – and one of those referrals led me to my first NFL client, which then led me to my second NFL client, which then got me into the locker room, which then got me uh, all the guys on the team, all the New Orleans Saints. Then all the New Orleans Saints started getting traded around. So this guy goes to play for Tampa Bay, and he's now the center at Tampa Bay. And he says, oh, Schottenstein, come over. I got to have you come meet with my team, you know, my new, my new quarterback, and so on and so forth. And that's how it goes. And the same thing happened in the NBA as well. Wow. That's great to get in that Rolodex, too, because multiple things. One is it started with the draft, right, which is like an event in and of itself. Lots yeah. of visibility tied to that. Yeah, Lots of well, publicity. And, and, and then yeah. a lot of people don't realize, like, most of these teams, like, you, you can't travel in just normal stuff. Like, you're supposed to look professional. Yeah. You, you're, like, you Representing. have to, you you have to buy look. these yeah. things, yeah. too. So it's great. Yeah. So... I'll leave you, and speaking of the draft, and you know, I'll leave you with this on Astor and Black because I definitely want to talk about the other stuff, which is, frankly, a lot more exciting. Um, but in 2010, the last draft where I still own the company, we dressed 23 of the top 25 NFL draft picks, and we dressed 21 of the top 25 NBA draft picks. Wow. That's unreal. So we, were, we were canvassing it. We had it covered. Yeah. And, hmm. and and so and yeah, we'll close the loop as far as uh, Astor and Black is concerned. But needless to say, the margins were solid. Can you give us an understanding generally of what those those margins were at your peak in terms of you know uh, what you were able to to? I mean, the margins on custom suits I would think have to be pretty extraordinary. No. Yeah, well, the, the, in general, but of course, the way I do things, I want to beat everybody on price. So my margins were lower than everybody else's. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, you think about a gross margin of let's say forty five to fifty percent, mm -hmm. and um, not a ton of overhead. So we were able to make it work and make some money. And we did, you know, tens of millions of dollars of business. So that adds up, you know? 
So in, in, at your peak in 2011 when you sold, rumor has it at least um, in terms of what I've been able to see through Crunchbase and others, you were able to sell that thing for $50 million. So we're not talking about pocket change here. Is that an accurate number? Correct. Yeah. And you were the sole shareholder, right? Uh, no, I had, I had, uh, I had uh, my brother owned a little bit of stock. And in two, a couple of years before I sold it, I sold 10% of it to another shareholder. So I had him as a shareholder as well. Mm-hmm. But I was... Definitely the majority shareholder. Nice. And at any point in time, did you did you have to fight for that valuation, or was it did they come in with a number you wanted right out of the gate, or how did that go down? We negotiated, but remember, I didn't sell one hundred percent of the company. I still kept the minority stake in the company, mm-hmm. which I, of course went, became worthless. But um, yeah. I negotiated for the valuation to get there to get where I, to get what I wanted. I negotiated pretty hard. Gotcha. And Richard, you have one more question before we move forward? No, I was just going to say that there's something to be said because I do a lot with e-commerce stuff. And when the, the margin's all relative, when the price point's high enough and your, and your overhead's low enough, right? So when you're selling a $2,000 suit, or I don't know what the exact numbers were at the time, you're getting 40 50% still and your overhead's low enough because you're getting it manufactured over. Um, yeah, I just... That's the only thing I want. Margins to. are good. We Mar- like margins. Yeah. You know, and and so you, you had a, a really nice exit. You were able to hold on to a piece. I assume there was some sort of earn out and whatnot tied to that. But uh, as you said, it became pretty much worthless. We can we can close the door there. So do you take time off? Do you do you give the wife a hug? Do you buy her the rock she's wanted? I mean, like, do you, do you take the 17 kids off on a nice cruise somewhere? Like, how? what, what do you do after you sell? And in 20 because you're still really young at that point I mean, you're 27 28 right at that yeah. point so I was, uh, 27 at that point yeah so so what did you do did you stop did you celebrate did you smell the roses or are you just kind of one of those i gotta go gotta go kind of guys i i gotta go i gotta go i gotta go so yeah. i i i didn't do any of those things um i invested my money in um a number of small businesses where I where I liked the founder and I liked the business. So Mizzen and Maine was one of them. I invested in a company called uh, One Wheel. So OneWheel.com. It's it's humongous now. It's that um, it's not a hoverboard, but it's like it's like the board with the big fat wheel in the middle that people yeah. are riding all over the place. Sweet, massive. It's like surfing on land basically, and it goes like 25 miles an hour. It's nuts. So that thing blew up. Um, invested in a bunch of different companies that did really well, and I offered my assistance to those companies in terms of marketing assistance and, um, you know, any, mm-hmm. any connections that I could offer them that they could then use. So those stakes ended up becoming worth quite a bit more. Uh, I put some money in some basic investments like real estate and stocks. Um, and I started another company uh, called Viewabill, mm-hmm. which was a billing software company. I started it with uh, Alan Dershowitz actually as like the kind of the face of it. Mm. And the idea there was, you know, when I sold the previous company, Astron Black, I had this experience where my legal bill came in from the transaction and it came in at two times what they had originally quoted me. Mm. So I get the bill and I'm like, wait a second, you guys said it was going to be X. It's two times that. Well, during the process, you asked us to do this, this, and this, and it racked up more hours and more charges. So we ended up fighting about it and we ended up settling on a number that neither of us was happy with. So I said, why isn't there some kind of app on my phone where as my lawyer is billing me, I can see them entering the hours and I can tell before I don't have to wait to the end of the month or the end of the project to get the bill. Mm-hmm. It's in real time, real time billing, right? Smart. So, uh, we built that up over, uh, we built that up over a two year period. Um, I hated that business, hated it. Like, mm-hmm. The most painful thing in the world dealing because because you can imagine in order to make that business work, you've got to get the law firms to use it. So you're dealing with law firms every day. Yeah, and they don't want to use it. I mean, it's like it's almost a protective mechanism for the consumer. So the the consumer so the almost has it, to drive that process. Which is how we drove the process. We went to uh, uh, companies like Goldman Sachs and uh, AIG and whoever, Smart. and we met with their general counsel and we said, "Hey guys, check this check this tool out." let's make all your law firms use it, right? So there's this guy who's the general counsel at uh, MGM, Grant, uh, MGM Resorts, named uh, uh, is uh, John McManus. I think now he's actually maybe president of MGM. 
one of the coolest guys ever. So I go to John, I say, and I met John through a friend and I say, show him the tool. He says, I love it. This is great. He sends the letter out to his outside counsel. Hey, if you guys, you know, just a heads up, if, you, if any of you guys want any business from us going forward, you got to use Viewabill. Mm. That'll do so it. All of a sudden, so you got, well, then you have a bunch of law firms. Well, does it violate attorney-client privilege? Is it a problem? Da, da, da. So put it this way. Two years later, when we got an offer to sell the company, I was like, where do I sign? Yeah. Like, And it wouldn't surprise me if it was a, a larger law firm that bought it just to take <laughs> it off the market. Just to shut it down. Just to shut it down. Exactly. Right? Is that what happened? Right. No. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that might happen, but it didn't. What ended up happening was another company in the legal billing space uh, wanted to um, – essentially integrate our functionality into their e-billing tool mm -hmm. so they bought us they bought us and did that nice and so just taking uh kind of a, an in-between step here and we'll get into the current business uh, immediately thereafter but i'm just curious from a mindset perspective and you know it's funny i um i have a term called tap the tribe you know and uh and so i'm i'm part of you and i are part of the same tribe and so there's a, a term that i use called tap the tribe you know which is like it's a great way for you to be able to get these things launched and a great way for you to, be able to connect with awesome people and so i would think at that point that you sold did you tap the tribe to really then try to figure out what made the most sense in terms of what to do with the windfall so did you have a mindset of like i'm going to put 10 percent of this away i'm not going to touch it it's going to be my you know my 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 nest egg, whatever it is that you want to call it, put it away, let it just accrue low cost, you know, low uh, rates of interest, but it's safe. It's out of the way. And then I'm going to have 90% of this just as, as play money to kind of do the other thing. Like what was the mentality going the mentality, off of that exit? The mentality, my mentality was pretend like this money does not exist. Put it away. Pretend like you're never going to make another buck again, and this has to tide you over for years to come. Like meaning, in, in the future, you're going to need this money. Yeah. And uh, my wife and I were pretty successful at limiting ourselves in terms of, you know, extravagances or whatever. You know, yeah, sure, we we definitely upgraded a thing here, a thing there. Uh, we gave a lot of charity. Um, you know, one of the first things we did was we bought. Uh, I spent a million dollars on a building from my in-laws, our uh, rabbi and uh, the, the rabbi uh, couple for the, the um, Jews from the former Soviet Union who came to Canada as refugees. So they took all these people in and they run this whole community. They have a big synagogue and they do a food bank for these people. And so they never had their own building because they're terrible fundraisers. They're amazing operators, but great, terrible fundraisers. So we bought a building and they have now have a synagogue there. It's called the David and Edith Schottenstein center. So we did some projects like that. Uh, and, um, we opened up a, a soup kitchen. Uh, we did some cool stuff there. Uh, definitely got my wife some nice jewelry. Definitely, uh, uh, did some cool vacations that we hadn't done before, but the vast majority of it, we put away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. for yeah. So let's, let's get into then the current business and, and I'm totally going to butcher the name because uh, I did not study French in high school, but Reveau, another, but how do you say it? Privé Reveau. Privé Reveau. Okay, there you go. And so again, it speaks to the power of name and uh, of naming and of brand. You, you are, I mean, Viewable sucks, I'll be honest with you, but, but uh, Aster and Black and Privé Reveau, I mean, like those are really good. You know what I mean? And so it speaks to the power of, of a name. What, what, what does that mean anything? means private retreat so you're ah. hiding behind sunglasses your private retreat and the idea was basically the brand is all about luxury and it's all about providing this high-end luxury experience with all the features and all the better packaging better features better everything than you get when you spend 100 or 200 bucks on sunglasses or glasses but let's do it at a price point that makes sense so purveyor vote to me had that feel like it's a luxury brand it's it's, you know, it's got that um, mystique to it. Mm -hmm. um, the whole idea there was really just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a cool story, but Jamie Foxx had this experience. We were connected through mutual friends, and he had this experience where he had to go to an event, and he forgot his sunglasses. So he buys these sunglasses, and he wears them out, and everyone's going nuts. Are they Gucci? Are they Ferragamo? They're gorgeous. Are they Dior? And they were $12 sunglasses from Chevron. <laughs> so... He gets home and he throws them away because the quality was garbage. And he tells his friend, can't we go and source 
really beautiful eyewear, like same stuff they're selling for 200 bucks. Can we do that and just charge something reasonable for it? Mm-hmm. And then we create a brand. We can get everyone wearing them. And uh, to make a long story short, that's exactly what we did. Uh, Jamie Foxx, Haley Steinfeld, Ashley Benson, they're all partners in the venture. Uh, Dave Asakal, who's our head of celebrity relations. And we created a product where everyone's wearing it and we're not paying them to wear it. Mm-hmm. All these wearing the product you go through hollywood j-lo heidi klum uh the jonas brothers everyone's wearing the product they're not being paid to wear the product they're wearing it because they love the product mm-hmm. uh, materials that we use are materials like acetate the kind of stuff you don't see in hundred dollar sunglasses you see that in two hundred dollar sunglasses uh triple barrel hinges polarized lenses you name it it's there we have mm-hmm. we, we uh, I, they said, well, what kind of case do you want to do? Should we just put in a normal case? That you, I said, the case has to be sexy. The case has to be functional. So we created this collapsible case that folds flat into your pocket. And everything is something. You know, the whole, the whole experience is A+. And, and we really succeeded in doing that at $29.95, which is crazy. You know, now we have, now we have the Black Collection, which actually launched today, which is $39.95 because we're really exploring right yeah and i'm talking about like a, a completely different level of quality and we added 10 bucks to the price you know mm-hmm. so so go ahead Rich. yeah i definitely have a question so <laughs> sorry, for, sorry for going on and on oh, I just, no, it's, great. No, it's perfect it's very when I talk about this go, kind of goes into what i love talking about anyway in e-commerce so you you had the big margins at aster and black or excuse me the margins could probably even be the same. The difference is the price point of the other ones were so big that your profit was larger on the other. So when I land on the site, I see right away you're collecting an email. So since it's such a low cost item, is your new model going lifetime value of a customer and more basket value? Is that where you're going? Like more SKUs, buy more glasses? The new model, so yeah, you're, you're kind of spot on with everything you just said. But first of all, the new model is our margins don't have to be as good as everybody else in the eyewear industry. We're willing to make less. And that's why we're able, people are like, how can you charge this price for that product? And I'm like, you should be asking them how they charge what they charge for that product. Mm. I charge a fair price. I, I go and I get the right. So that's how that's how we operate. And the model is that at twenty nine bucks and thirty nine bucks for both sunglasses and now we do optical glasses too. You should be able to own thirty pairs of sunglasses or ten pairs of sunglasses. You shouldn't have to have one pair that matches everything. If you put on a black suit, you should have your blackout shades. If you put on your navy suit or you put on your pair of jeans and your sweater, you might want to wear something different. So you should have the ability to really mix it up. So yes, the model is let's get the customer to buy a lot of product, and that and we've been successful with that. And I love it because it does a few things. If if someone's just wearing one pair of glasses, that's cool. You eventually get like banner blindness and everyone's like, okay, yeah, they're cool glasses. But if it's another new cool pair and it's another new cool pair and I was like, wait, those are all the same company? Because I looked through the site and it's, they're different looks and feels too. It's super cool. And, and, and you know, I'm sure you guys like everyone else in the world, I don't care if you spend $30 on your sunglasses, $10 or $500, you're going to lose them or break them at some point. It's mm-hmm. going to happen. The difference is, are you going to feel like a schmuck when it happens? So when you lose a pair of $30 sunglasses, you don't beat yourself up. You don't beat yourself up over it. Mm-hmm. And the beauty is you're not being asked to sacrifice on style, quality, or experience. And you still get to, you know, you, you get to go to town and get six, seven, eight pairs and have fun with it. So that's the model. Um, and it's been, it's been a, it's just been amazing. I mean, seeing the customer reaction over the past couple of years, it's been two years now, uh, has been unbelievable. Yeah, and so just let's again go back to the embryonic stages here. So, ja- so Jamie Fox originally had the idea and came to you through that mutual connect. Like, how did how did he pick you out of all the people? Obviously, you had success in in, in retail and direct to consumer and so on. I mean, you had that success, you had that track record. But out of all the people that he could have gone to, why why you? And were you fifty fifty partners? How did you structure? How how was ownership structured? So the way we did it was, um, it wasn't, so Jamie didn't have that exact idea from his experience. The idea was born, right. And he, he got connected to me because 
his friend who knows me and knows him said, oh, I know this guy. He's a real entrepreneur. Let me connect you with him and let's see what he thinks if there's something to do with this, you know, with, with your experience, basically. So um, the split is not 50-50 because uh, we brought on other celebrities and this is not their full-time gig, right? It's my full-time gig. Yeah. And, so, you know, we, we worked out something reasonable and they all have, you know, equity in the company. Um, I have a partner who's an, who is an investor in the company who, who you know, kind of helped put the money up to start it as well. So he's got equity. Uh, and from that kind of embryonic stage, it was from start to finish about a six month process till we were able to launch. Mm -hmm. So branding exercises, shot the commercial, did the, the whole spiel, took about six months and we launched it June of 2017. Uh, we actually launched it on Amazon's homepage. We threw our celebrity assets we were able to get amazon excited about it hmm. and say hey, we'll exclusively launch it on your website and our website to start and then it ended up uh going to a number of other retailers in a very short period of time after that including uh dillard's kohl's uh america's best optical uh qvc is a huge partner of ours um and, and I'll, I'll yeah go ahead sorry no, i was just gonna say and you get in and do you I would think that you probably would have to control pricing in order for this to, to work with your model. So yep. QVC yep. can't go on and say, hey, for the next 10 minutes, you can get this one for $19.95 instead of $29.95. They can just show a retail value because they can do a comparative analysis and say, hey, this same pair of Gucci would go for $395, but this is 20 Like, they could do that. But America's Best, QVC, Amazon, et cetera, I mean, for this to work in that manner, I would venture to guess it has to be the same price across the board, No. Does yeah. we keep we keep map pricing and the you know for, with our retailers depending on you know what the situation is we might allow a quick discount here a quick discount there on specific styles but in general we keep it the price is fair enough at twenty nine and thirty nine there's no reason to discount it further mm -hmm. and and I, and I have to ask this question then as far as the celebrities go did you create uh, so obviously well for those who are unfamiliar with this then you have employee stock option pools where you can set aside a piece of the company specifically for employees. What comes to mind for, for me in this situation, perhaps, you know, other situations that celebrities are involved, we won't get into names because some of those have not done well, but those that do do well, I mean, are you doing like a, for lack of a better term, like a celebrity stock option pool where you have set aside a particular portion of the company and then say, you know, Jamie Foxx, you can grab 12% of that and Ashley, you can grab 8% of that and at all of said and done, you get it to 100%, but it's still only... 15% or something like that of the whole company. So um, without getting into specific percentages, every, each one of the partners had a specific percentage at the beginning and that was it. So okay. those, those were the partners. And then going forward, when we work with other celebrities on like these capsule collections that we're doing, um, it's more of a rev share type model. So it's, okay. it, it's not an equity model. Um, we now have a partner uh, about a year ago on the one year anniversary we sold um, a, a significant minority stake in the business to a, a, a private equity group called TSG Consumer. So they're based in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. uh, TSG bought a significant minority stake, and uh, the purpose of that deal was really to bring on uh, a partner with significant know-how in the consumer space who could help us in a number of areas where we needed help. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, was, yeah, there, was it a cash type of infusion where that you can then cash out or was the expectation that that money would be invested back into the business Both. and everyone gets diluted some cash in some cash out so it was a combination deal um and i can tell you from everything i have done with this business from every move i've made i can tell you that one of the smartest things if not the smartest thing i've done is i brought them in as a partner mm -hmm. and decision to go with them as a partner. Um, you know, a lot, and, and I can tell you, by the way, it's rare to hear that. A lot of private equity groups try to get involved in a consumer business, and all you hear from the founders and uh, later on is, oh, my God, what a nightmare to work with them. What a, You know, they have been nothing short of a complete and total pleasure to work with, uh, tremendous value add. Every area where I'm weak, they're strong. They've been able to step in and help out. Um and they've really helped us take this business to a different level. And so I, I can tell you, you know, someone said, well, well, what advice would you give me as a, as a, you know, consumer with a fast growing business? I was like, convince TSG to invest in your company. Well, 
Interesting. And, uh, and I don't know how much research you've been able to do on, on us and what uh, all the fun things are that we've done, but I've actually owned liquor.com since 1998, uh, oh. which is uh, a business that's still alive and well. We should totally tap the tribe on that one because there's, I mean, we get Jamie and all those folks involved. That thing is ready to blow up. That's a conversation for another day. Uh, and Mary's in real estate. I've done real estate development since 2000. I'm actually uh, in the process of looking to launch what I might call housing as a service, which I think is the new trend that uh, capitalizes on location independent entrepreneurs and you know that whole remote worker movement and so on. So maybe we'll have a conversation about those two things at some point down the line. But any uh, any further thoughts before we let you jump here? Because I know you know you got a million things going on. Any further thoughts uh, for the entrepreneur who's looking to either start or scale or or exit from a business? You can take on one or all three phases. So. Um there's one key piece of advice I'll I'd give to anyone, and um, I can use my wife as the example here because she's currently starting something and launching something. But she's got a children's book being published. She's got a music album being her music's being acquired by a major a studio, and they're using it. And you know she's got a whole bunch of different things going on. Uh, she's got her master's in psychology, et cetera, and she's launching this thing called the Multi Role Woman, and it's about she's a mom to four kids wife to a really demanding individual, busy individual, and got all this other stuff going on. And through that process, um, I've been watching her and I've been saying, you know, and I've seen a number of times where it's, she's kind of like, well, should I throw the towel in? Is this not worth doing? And she's had grit and persistence throughout. And if there's the single most valuable thing I have ever, and, I, and it's funny, what she was for me, pushing me, I am now for her. Because it's always easier to do it when you're sitting in more of an objective position. Mm -hmm. The single most valuable thing that an entrepreneur needs to succeed is grit and persistence. You, if you want to start a company, you want to get to a company beyond $10 million in revenue or sell a company for more than $10 million, get ready to fail. And get ready to have things not go your way. And get ready to have days when you feel like you, you just got to quit. Get ready for that. You can't handle that. Get a nine-to-five job. Forget yeah. about the company. It's not for you. If you can handle that and you can really get over those humps, you might have what it takes. It's still not a guarantee, by the way, but you, you, that is uh, uh, the key ingredient to success, in my opinion, as an entrepreneur, is that grit. And um, if you got it and you can, you can just keep getting back up and fight to, you know, live to fight another day uh, and you got a good idea and you got drive and you got hustle and a little bit of good luck uh, – you know, you'll get to that beyond eight figures, right? That's yeah. the bottom line. Yeah, I was just going to say that that's last week. Uh, the, the guest last week, Stephen, basically said my, uh, my uh, what, not advice, yeah, advice was, I'm like, what? what's the word again? Um, you don't take that much. Get, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he said, get a government job with a pension. And he was slightly sarcastic, but what he meant by it is if you're – thinking for more than a minute or two about getting that job, then you probably don't have that grit and persistence. The, the entrepreneur is going to do it anyway because the dream, the vision is pulling him so far that he's going to do it or she's going to do it regardless. So mm -hmm. just interesting 100%. that two weeks in a row. Yeah, man. All right, look, David, we really appreciate you spending as much time as you did here with us on Beyond Eight Figures, David Schottenstein. Uh, please go check out Preve Revo. Let me spell that for you. So P-R-I-V-E-R-E-V-A-U-X. So check out com, and you can see all the fun stuff there. And, uh, man, just obviously you've been able to pick some, some winners. I know you've had some trials and tribulations, but overall, man, your batting average is just killer. So given everything that's going on and uh you know hopefully you'll see some big paydays and some of those other things like one wheel and uh and whatnot we um we wish you wish you nothing but luck moving forward and maybe we'll uh we'll chat about liquor.com and latitude the new real estate thing and having jamie fox on and all the other uh all the other fun stuff if any of your if any of your listeners go to purveyorvo.com uh this is my friends and family discount they can use friends and family 10 friends and, so family, it's friends 10. and family lowercase and then one zero uh, so I'll, I'll leave that active for a little bit so you guys can, uh, you guys can take advantage and not that you need the discount on 20 dollars <laughs> yeah, right. but I encourage you to give it a shot and experience it. It's pretty cool. Hey, three bucks nice. kept is three bucks earned, man. All right, my friend, we really appreciate it. We will talk to everybody next time here on beyond eight figures. Take care, everybody.